0: Welcome to Ocity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Curland. I'm the author of The Click that Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. So, Dominique, you had some questions that were going to launch us off in today's conversation. So, I'll just, without any introduction, I'll just say, "Have at it." What is our starting point?
1: Well, we've talked on more than one occasions about planning ahead before we go into a training sessions, and there are many elements that a trainer should plan for. Reinforcement strategies, one environment setup is another. But today, I want to talk about selecting criteria how do you select a good criterion? What goes into that thought process? And I wanna start with something I've heard you say many times, and I'm hoping that we can, that you have lots of examples of this uh, for us. Okay. So you've said when, when you select a criterion, the criterion you're looking for should already be occurring within the loop. It may not be consistent yet, but it should already be occurring. So I want to hear you on this. Yes. Okay.
0: So this relates to the image of the funnel. Whether, you know, if you think about a funnel, and you have the wide end of the funnel that you normally pour the, you know, the liquid, whatever, the liquid in, and then it goes, tapers down to the narrow end, so that you can pour liquid into a container. And you can think of of our learners, think of the horse as the container. So we're, we're pouring our training into the into our learner. So you can have a funnel that's the wide end of the funnel, or you could flip the funnel the other way so that the narrow, the tiny end, is what you start with, and then it gradually widens out. And when i was watching a lot of shaping early on i saw people shaping from the wide end of the funnel and they were they were hoping that their animal would offer them something useful and you saw this in the training game as well when people were were playing the training game where you you had somebody who's You wanted to shape them to go into the center of the room and pick something up or, you know, whatever it was. And you were hoping that they would start to offer behaviors that you Mm -hmm. could use. And so there was a lot of trial and error learning. There was a lot of extinction. There's a lot of pruning away the, uh, you know, I'm I'm reinforcing this approximation, but there's a lot of noise in the Mm -hmm. approximation. You know, I'm I'm reinforcing the dog for sitting, but the dog is sitting with his hips off to the side now. And then the next time he's sitting where he's leaning really far forward, or he's sitting, I don't know how many different variations of sitting dogs present to people, but but you get a lot of different versions of sit. And then you start pruning them. You start saying, well, you know, I really want you to sit this way and not that way. Or, you know, um, so there's a lot of pruning. But then, what uh, Jesus, what Dr. Jesus or Salzer was pointing out is that, you know, when you prune something, it doesn't go away. It's still there, and I remember at one of the uh, the, the thoughtful training conferences, the land cruises that Kay Lawrence uh, hosted for us, Jesus did this wonderful graphic, where he, he drew. On the graph, he, he charted the number, the frequency of various behaviors occurring, and and so you had this sort of bell-shaped curve. So the picture of this graph, where what you want is um, is behavior G, okay. let's say, and and you start uh, to reinforce behavior G, but you also are are getting behaviors A, B, C, D and F. So you're getting all these other behaviors, and they're occurring at the same time that G Mm -hmm. is occurring. But you're reinforcing G a lot, but you're also at times reinforcing some of these other behaviors. But over time, you begin to see more and more G and less of these other behaviors. But when you put a little stress into the system, those behaviors will reoccur because they've been mm-hmm. reinforced. They haven't disappeared.
1: They're attached to
0: the whole thing too. They're attached to the whole mm-hmm. thing too. And it was, it was such a clear explanation. And I hope I'm coming even remotely in the ballpark because it was so clear that, yeah, right now I may only be seeing that behavior that I want, but those other behaviors are looking in the background, waiting (laughs) to emerge when there's a little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of stress, a change in the environment that disrupts the the behavior a little bit. And, And so when you start shaping from the wide end of the funnel, you are introducing, and what I saw was a lot of extinction because people were waiting For the next criterion they would say oh you're you've got a horse who's standing in the grown-ups are talking and now I want my horse to put his ears forward but this is a horse who doesn't put his ears forward this is a horse who generally always has his ears back and so you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting for something that isn't going to happen and so now you have a horse who's getting frustrated because he was expecting you to click and treat because he had his nose between his shoulders and you normally click and treat when he leaves his nose between his shoulders for three or four seconds. I and mean, Now it's five or six seconds and you haven't clicked and he's not sure what's going on, so he's feeling frustrated. And in his frustration, he starts to paw or he s- swings his head over and, and swipes at your elbow to remind you that, <clears throat> human, pay attention. I'm still there. So, you know, I was watching all of this thinking, this is this is not this is not a good way to train. And it's not what I had learned in the shaping the pre-clicker training, the pre using a marker signal and pairing it with positive reinforcement, but using pressure and release of pressure, you know, sliding down a lead waiting for the horse to respond, and then releasing. You still had to pick a criteria. You still had to pick a criteria. And what I learned from that is that you you shift to the new criterion when it's already there. So this was an understanding that I brought with me into clicker training. It wasn't something that I stumbled across once Mm -hmm. I was clicker training. And so what I what I had learned from these very, uh, really s- finely split, I'm, I'm sliding down the lead and I'm looking for some tiny response from my horse from a change in the feel in his pole because he's just changed slightly the orientation in his pole. And that has created a different feel in my hand down the lead. And I release that. But I can't demand it. I can't insist on it. I can't go in and grab it. It's not something that I can make happen. It has to be something that evolves and that the horse offers. Mm -hmm. And, And so I learned to look for what was on offer, what was already there. And what you find is that by the time it starts to register on your nervous system, that that you become aware of it, it's happening often enough that you can start to say, oh, let me wait until that event, that, that, that action, occurs and make that the clickable moment. So for example, if you're standing next to a horse and the grown ups are talking, and you know, our horses are, they're big, they're tall, and often when I'm standing next to a horse, his ears are kind of out of my easy field mm-hmm. of vision if I'm looking at what he's doing with his nose because I'm focused on the grown-ups are talking, or maybe I'm focused on having him orient to a target. And so my eyes are going down, not up. And so the, the ears are a little bit out of my field of vision. But when the ears start to move, that movement is going to, it's going to trigger my awareness. And then I will start to go, oh, ears, right. They're ears. I should pay attention to ears. And then I start to notice more. What is he doing with his ears? Oh, he's got his ears forward. Oh, great. Let me make that the next clickable moment. So I think it it works a little bit like that. Of Sometimes you don't notice the absence of something. You know, because when something's Wait a minute. not there... You don't
1: notice the absence. Yes, right? Yeah, following. <laughs> okay, so remember,
0: did you ever go in school? Did they ever play the game of sending one person out and you had to figure out who was missing it's not it's a it can be hard mm-hmm. you know you've got a classroom of 30 people and one person is not there who's not who's not here you know it can it can be hard to notice sometimes something that's not there that's missing and you don't know that it's missing until it's there right you know that until you've seen it, until you've, for example, balance. Once you've seen good balance, you can't mm-hmm. unsee it. There's no, there's no going back. Once you start to really notice good balance, then it just it's there. It's it's popping out at you. And the absence of it is is equally glaring. But when you when you're looking at a horse who is just starting out and you haven't seen how beautiful, oh, how absolutely gorgeous this horse is going to, to look how, how he's going to look when he picks himself up and carries himself instead of hanging down like an old cart horse who's at the end of, of a long work day. You don't know yet what the next thing is going to look like. Does that make sense at all? until it until it starts mm-hmm. to appear. So when you say what, you know, let me plan what's going to be my criterion. Well, what I plan is what is my baseline. So you go out and you ask, where are we mm-hmm. today? Oh, this is where we are today. Let me ask a couple of times and and because you don't produce carbon copies of behavior you know, so if i ask for something 3 times i'm going to get 3 different 3 different variations of that behavior. I'm not going to get carbon copies. They may be very close but they're not going to be mm-hmm. identical. There will be some little difference in me, there'll be some little difference in the horse. And so part of what i what we're doing is we're data collecting. I got 3 carbon copies. Which which one of the 3 Oh, uh, do I like the best? Why? And and I may not be able to answer that at first. So let me go get two or three or four or five more examples of this behavior. So now I have eight copies. None of them are are identical, but some will please me more than others. And as I collect more data, more more copies, I will begin to say, Oh, I like this version better because in Grown Ups Are Talking, he had his mouth closed, and in these two versions, he had his tongue out and he was licking his lips. So, uh, but over here, there was a moment where his mouth was closed. Let me go after closed mouth as the next criterion. And that becomes my focus for the moment. That makes sense? It does. So what we're doing, let me let me just add because that's so that's the wide end of the funnel. The narrow end of the funnel says, well, let's start with that really tight, clean loop. So we're gonna flip the funnel upside down and we're gonna start with the really tight, tight, clean loop. And this loop is so tight and so small that only the thing the be the actions, the behaviors that you are want in there can fit. Yeah. Yeah. That Everything else doesn't fit in the narrow end Mm -hmm. of the funnel. And then I'm gonna gradually expand my loop little bit by little bit by little bit. And so gradually what I'm gonna have is is the wide end of the funnel. But that wide end end of the funnel contains only behaviors that I want Mm -hmm. in there. And if I stress the behavior a little bit so that the animal regresses, it's Mm -hmm. very stable. Because I'm still regressing back to behaviors that I want to clean so loops.
1: Then, would you say that in a way, because when, when we started, you said, you know, this is something that this was a way of looking at shaping that I had even before clicker training in long, long time ago, 25 years or so later you're focusing now more on loopy training and having very tight loops. So in a way, this way of seeing, although you're not, you're still, it's still there, but are you still using it as much? Or are you now more into the tight loop and really, because in a way, when you say had it. it's already there, it means there are other things there too.
0: No? No. I would say that I was actually training in tight loops way back when. Pre- Pre-clicker training. And in mm-hmm. marker signal. So what has changed has been our way of talking about it and teaching it. So we've gotten better at really understanding and teaching the work. I mean, one of the things that I think has been really, I want to say really cute, and but really interesting is hearing uh Jesus talk about the stimulus control, you know, what, what we've gotten we've all gotten so excited about recently. And he says, you know, we knew this. We knew this with the poison Q research, mm-hmm. which was twenty not quite twenty years ago, but almost. Uh, you know, we 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 knew it, we saw it, but we didn't yet know really what we were seeing. And it's just gotten clearer and clearer and clearer. In terms of how to talk about it and how to mm-hmm. teach it, so I think what what is happening is we're getting much better at teaching this this work. When you look at like Gold Diamond's work, that we're all now really excited by, it, and those four questions mm. that Gold Diamond poses, well, that goes back to the sixties. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know. So we're just sort of catching up to mm-hmm, our past, mm-hmm. which is sort of an interesting way of thinking about it. We're, we're catching up to our past, and maybe eventually we can start. Well, you know,
1: it's actually <laughs> funny because some of the things that we have found really extraordinary in the past few years, um, a lot of them are hazers just digging up, you know, gold diamond stuff from the 60s, 70s. Yes. we're like oh, now this is a game changer, you know, that's where the future is. But that future was kind of already uh, presented to the world a few years back, but just was either forgotten or was, I mean, for sure, for us, our community, it's brand new. It's like, we've never heard this before. Yes,
0: But then apparently a lot of, you know, in the communities for which it was intended, mm. that it also has gotten pushed aside when Claire talks about Mm mastery-based teaching and so on and you think oh that sounds so wonderful how come (laughs) Um, and these are not new ideas so I think in a sense it's what's going to happen is the animal training community is going to is is going to bring these these ideas to the forefront and say hey look constructional training what a good idea. We should be doing well, that. You
1: know, when 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 picking that perfect criterion, the one that will make sure, help you um, make your animals successful, I think those questions, those four, was it four or five questions? Four, four, questions, four questions that you talked about from Gold Diamond's uh, constructional approach can really help to identify what that criterion will be. Um, You know, because I'm not sure that people would have when they were doing their shaping plans that they would have thought as much about, for instance, what the current repertoire of their animal is before thinking about what am I, what am I going to ask this animal what is the behavior going to look like I think that that question what does he already have in repertoire is. Is useful in helping you in that thought process of identifying that criterion. You know, what, what will a successful repetition look like? I think it's useful to ask what is an unsuccessful repetition going to look like? Two. Yes, know, that can be a good question, yep. too. Will you reinforce a slow response? You have the behavior, but it's slow. Yeah, maybe not. You know, recently I've heard some very interesting discussions um, between trainers talking about duration. And one of the things I I heard, which I thought was really interesting, was click for quality and the quantity will come with it. You know, when we talk about those just because clicks, because, you know, you feel like, oh, I haven't reinforced in a while. I really should be reinforcing. Well, and I want to keep the rate of reinforcement high. And so I'm going to click, but you actually end up with a very frustrated animal because it's not just the rate of reinforcement. We've talked about the importance of clarity so often that if you're just clicking to keep up the rate of reinforcement, you may be muddying everything. You know, there goes the clarity down the drain because- now you've clicked kind of a half response, not exactly what you were looking for. And so now the animal's all confused. You know, it doesn't, you can, and, and we've given a few, a few alternatives to that. When you see that it's not the rate of reinforcement really is going down, that perhaps you should ask for something else an easy behavior the animal already knows just so that you can keep your animal engaged in the game, but that you should not in order to keep reinforcement rate of reinforcement high, you should not click a behavior that is not what you have defined in your planning ahead as a successful behavior, as a successful repetition, as something that should trigger the reinforcement. You have to define what that behavior is, what that criterion is. And I think there are a lot of questions around that can help us. I think that those gold diamond, Questions can really help us in identifying that criterion, the one that will help you move along in as an errorless way as possible.
0: I wonder if saying that criterion mm-hmm. is na- too narrow, because when we're looking at a mm-hmm. loop, you know, looping mm-hmm. training, there are many behaviors that are c- occurring in a loop. So right. there are many handler uh learner interactions that are occurring. And so there is that behavior that is going to cause us yeah. to click.
1: That's that's where and I'm focusing on today because you know I'm I'm more focusing on the b uh of the of the abc's you know how to define the behavior what's my criterion f- for clicking so my criterion well, I mean, it could be about the environment, too, because I could click for the same behavior, but with more distraction. That can be part of my. Right, right. because
0: if I don't want to let go of monitoring the yeah. whole loop, because my animal might meet the criterion that I've picked out. Ears mm-hmm. pop forward, but he grabbed right, the food right. off my hand so i need to keep track of the whole the whole yeah. picture or i'll get into trouble right. and so i think that what you said earlier about what does it look like when it's not what i yeah. want is is i think a really important yeah. question so we often we think about i want to teach something i i'm starting something new that i mm. want to teach uh, and i'm thinking right now of the in the concept training the wonderful videos that Ken Ramirez has shared when he's figuring out the setup for some of his uh, his wonderful concept training, for example, with the uh, teaching the dogs uh, to count. Uh, mm-hmm. to count. Okay. Yes. yes, calls it something else these days, but yeah. it doesn't matter. Or matching um, match the dogs to count.
1: Some matching.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll do the we'll yeah. do the counting <laughs> and and in the in the initial uh, setup that he vide- videotapes. It's a mess. Mm. You know. It's an absolute mess. And it's so re- reassuring to see that someone who is as skilled and polished as mm. Ken is that uh, when the training starts, it doesn't start looking polished and it's, it's a bit of a mess. He discovers that, oh, this object that I thought I would use doesn't stand up and uh, so I can't use it or I've positioned my dog so that she doesn't have access to this tray of objects because I'm too close or, you know, whatever it is. So you start looking at your setup and going, no, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. And it's, I think, an important part of our training to have the, well, let me jump in at the deep end and see how it works. Mm, Permission. Yeah. You know, to say, OK, I I think I've done a reasonable job prepping my Learner, my horse has um, you know, a certain set of skills. He's doing really well, and you know, I've done the six foundation lessons, and he understands those well. And I've taught him some other things, and, and and the repertoire is beginning to expand. So let me try this lesson that I've heard Alex
1: describing, and because you know I believe in constructional training, I've picked a component behavior and trying to stay away from, or maybe.
0: Maybe I haven't, maybe I just, you know, or it it doesn't seem that hard.
1: You know, how hard
0: can it be to ask, uh, you know, like the single rein riding, the first lesson, you get on and you pick, you've got a circle of cones and you point your horse in the direction of one of the cones, you ride out around the cone, you turn around the cone, you come back through the middle of the circle, you pick out another cone, you turn around that cone. How hard can (laughs) that be? You know, you've been riding (laughs) forever and, and you may have even been riding this particular horse forever and you think you can steer. <laughs> and then you experiment with the single rein riding and you're wiggling right. all over the place. And you say, okay, um, it looked really mm. easy. I jumped in at the deep end. This lesson that I thought was really mm. easy has all kinds of hidden components yeah. to it that I wasn't aware mm. of. And now because I've jumped in at the deep end, how long do I stay there? I think that's really the question. You don't. Do I?
1: St- <laughs> Not long at all. Right. You
0: but but a lot of people do. That's where they start. That's where mm. they stay. And they and they sort of try and bludgeon their way through. The horse will figure it out. Yeah. We talked about that phrase last time. You know, my horse will figure it out. And we stay, you sort of stay trying to push your way through because this can't be that hard. And And you end up, compounding the problems, or do you say, oh, I jumped in at the deep end in this lesson that looked like it was really simple, and I discovered that there were all kinds of of assumptions and missing components, and now it's, and I, and I can see that it's a bit of a mess, so let me, let me go do something else with my horse, or let me put him away and go have a cup of tea while I think about this, whatever, but I'm not going to keep Digging this hole. You know, digging this hole. I'm not going to keep banging my head against the, you know, the brick wall or whatever whatever metaphor we want to choose for the moment. And instead, I'm going to go think about what my horse just showed me in this lesson. And he showed me that that I need to explain this piece or that piece, or I need to think about a little bit, you know, how else could I set this up? How could I make
1: this clearer for the two of us? Um, but it might be, you know, it might be, you could, you could work on the setup, but yep. part of your planning will be, so if we take your example of the horse that has, you're on your horse, you're riding, you want to go around a car. And you've discovered that there are lots of missing components. You're halfway. You're, you're, you're like ten feet away from that cone before it starts yeah. to to steer to the left. So now you've decided. You've divided. You've you've written down all these component behaviors that you think you need to teach, and you've looked at what your horse already knows how to do, and what I'm what I'm trying to help us with is, okay, I have now this small component, I think it's small enough. And now I'm going to decide that where let's say we were the horse was starting to turn that. Well, let's do the plan. So the horse was turning only he was like 10 feet away from the coat. Let's take, let's parse this example out. How would you go about it?
0: Well, what I might do is, is first I would ask myself, do I want to teach this from mm-hmm. the saddle or should okay. I get off? So I would probably yeah. get off and go, you know, let's, let's go uh, consider what some of the missing skills are. And, and I have to look at what, what part of this began to fall apart What part does he understand? So maybe my horse was having trouble walking a straight line out to the cones. He's wiggling all over the place. So, well, let me set out a whole lot of mats and go from mat mat to mat to mat to mat and see if I can't teach this idea of going from mat to mat and then begin to fade out the mats. And so there, you know, that would be one possible Uh, approach that you could take there there are many others
1: and then maybe you put the mats and your horse won't go on the mat so you thought you were going to use mats to teach your horse to ride a straight line but he's actually not going from mat to mat to mat so you have to go back even more right and you actually realize that he doesn't move forward on cue yes that you ask him to move forward to the mat towards something and he doesn't he, he just, just stays there, out. or he goes right. a little bit to the right. Not even so; it's just he won't even do one step, or maybe I'm exaggerating, but it could right. be. You know, sometimes you see that, especially when there's a mat. The horse will do the step, but not on the mat, because it's one right. thing to move forward; it's another to move forward onto a mat.
0: So one of the things that that just points out that you your comment brings out beautifully is that when you start to thin slice and thin slice, what you discover are the missing mm-hmm. components. And that's one of the reasons for taking this thin slice approach to training. Because the more that you look within the movement cycles and begin to look for the smallest the smallest components, you really begin to see all of the elements that make up this what can seem like a really small behavior but actually has you know many components that make it up and that becomes revealed and what you're looking for is that place in the training where you can get a consistent mm-hmm. yes answer and if for some horses that consistent yes Yes, answer may start with just um, a tiny shift of balance because they just inhaled.
1: Right.
0: You know, you know they're going to inhale and exhale, so you know they're inhaling and exhaling. And I have my hand on their body, and I can feel that when they uh, exhale, I feel their their ribs move, or you know when they inhale, I feel a shift. Um, because they are inhaling. And so maybe that's my starting point, because that's the the one place where I can get a consistent yes answer from this horse. But then you have horses like your horses who have learned how to learn and have a really broad uh, repertoire, and you can get yes answers all over
1: the place. Well, you know, one another question I find, and I think this one I, I got from... Uh, Mary Hunter's uh, portal book and shaping presentations. When you feel you're stuck, you know you don't know. Um, so you things are not going the way you want. You're trying to define what what behavior you're going to ask exactly. You're trying to find the components, the the right criterion. One of the questions she asks is, when you're doing your plan, is what other ways could I teach this behavior? I really yes. like that question. It, I think sometimes it just yeah. takes you it just breaks them um, when you're in a, like you are you feel like you're um, I don't know the word in, you know in French we have an expression like you're you're um, you know when you're on a bike you would and be you're, stuck you're in pedaling but it's pedaling oh. your chain is is I don't know how to say it in English anyway but you're stuck and so you you yeah. you know you try going back. Uh, a step you you try to go back where the horse was successful before you, you try to change things in the environment but you're just not getting unstuck you're stuck and so I find this question how else could I teach this behavior can bring you somewhere completely different and yes I find sometimes it's helpful because there are yep. so many ways that- to teach a behavior so many ways and that's as a right. matter of fact i think you and i talked about this before that sometimes it's actually useful to teach a behavior in different ways for all kinds of reasons so it's a good exercise to think okay my horse already knows how to do this thing this way but i'm going to reteach it some other way you know just to and and yeah. i think that can be useful too in in the in the thought process the planning process
0: that's been something that we've been talking about in the online course in the first one because we've got a lot of very experienced clicker trainers who are going through the course. It's the getting started course. Mm -hmm. And they're really, um, they're excited to be returning to these core foundation lessons because they're recognizing that they are bringing new questions Mm -hmm. to these lessons, which I thought was, that was really interesting insight. and And it was something that they were saying, you know, I'm coming to this with new questions. But also they were saying, you know, I I want to shape these things in a way, in Mm -hmm, a different way. mm -hmm. You know, I I taught head lowering using a target, but now I want to teach it in Mm -hmm, a different way. mm -hmm. And that that's going to increase their, uh, their skill level. Think about that wonderful experiment that Kay Lawrence did a chunk of years ago now, where the challenge was to shape a behavior in three different ways. So she took her three of her dogs who had roughly similar training backgrounds and the behavior was to go out and around a cone and come back. And she taught it with, um, targeting, free-shaping, and learning, I want to say. And then at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference, she showed the three videos, Mm. and she challenged this room full of experts, Mm. very skilled trainers, to say, okay, how Mm. were they taught? And you couldn't tell. We could guess. Of course you could guess. But it was just a guess. And, and we really none of us were what I would call right. It was just a lucky guess if we if we got it right.
1: And when you said before teaching head lowering with targeting, if you're sitting on your horse, it might be useful for you to have another way to have taught this. Yeah. Well,
0: K's to just to finish the mm. K example, because and there were various. There were lots of discussions around this and could. Could you replicate it with a different trainer and all the rest of it? And Kay's comment was so wonderfully Kay. She said, well, I don't know how it would work with, some, with other trainers, but it worked for these dogs because I'm equally skilled in all three <laughs> shaping. <them."> okay. Right. <laughs> I was just so, but you know, I heard that and I thought, huh, could I make that same statement? Am I equally skilled? Equally mm. skilled? using three different teaching strategies, or do I tend to lean more on one versus another? This is such a great question. I'm going to cue the music and leave you to think about it for your own training. To start out, how many teaching strategies can you identify? And would you be able to use them to get the same outcome, but in different ways? How inventive are you? It's all too easy to get stuck in a rut. You train a behavior the way you train a behavior because that's the way you always trained that behavior. And it works until it doesn't, until you encounter a horse who struggles to learn it in that particular way. Or maybe your horse is doing just fine, but you're a training junkie. And the more things you can come up with to train, the happier you are. So if you can think of six different ways to teach head lowering, it's as though you've added six whole new behaviors to your horse's repertoire. They may all look like head lowering, but it's possible your horse sees them as different behaviors because you got to them via different routes. And they may function a little differently in your training because of that. They may all look like head lowering, but the process of teaching your horse to lower his head using different teaching strategies has expanded your horse's repertoire, and it certainly expanded your training skill set. So there are lots of reasons to get out of the rut of always teaching a behavior in the same way. That's a great segue into the new online clinics. You've been hearing me talk about them over the last few podcasts. There are eight online clinics in all. The first one, off to a great start, opened in March. And I have to say, it's been really interesting for me going through the course with this first cohort. I obviously was thinking a lot about the foundation lessons while I was building the clinic, but now that it is up and running, it's another experience altogether. I've been telling people how useful it is to revisit the foundation lessons. And that's exactly what I've been discovering in my own training. I've been working lately on some ridden work that involves lots of weight shifts forward and back and then a series of super small circles. It's been really fun. It's been one of those, the longer you stay with an exercise, the more good things you see that it gives you type of lesson. What I'm finding most interesting is my attention to the details of this advanced lesson have been sharpened because I'm thinking so much about the foundation lessons. I think if I were thinking so much about the online clinic, I would have been asking for way too much in this lesson, or I would have been losing control of the cues. But I'm spending so much time in the off to a great start online clinic that it's keeping my focus and it's really helping me to keep clean loops. It's so fascinating how much sits within these core foundation lessons that continues to ripple through everything else that you do. I hadn't realized that one of the benefits of this new online format would be that I would get to work with my own horses right along with everyone else. So it's really fun. If you're interested in joining us, please do. The clinics are all self-paced, you don't have to wait for a class to begin, you can jump in at any point and work through the material on your own schedule, and you can join the online coaching sessions and get feedback on your own training. If you want to learn more about the stay-at-home learn-from-home clinics, please visit my website, theclickercenter.com. You'll see detailed descriptions of all eight clinics and and a detailed description of how these clinics work, along with the syllabus for each of the courses. So. Go take a look and come and join us. And then next week, we're going to continue on with this question. Are you equally skilled in the different shaping strategies? And we'll see where that takes us. So stay safe and have fun with your horses.